Today is July 28th, 2021. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mekoche, Chase, Tokom, Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson. I'm going to use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the opposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are Siksika, Gunai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are also Treaty 7, signed September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley Chiniki, Bearspaw Nations of the Stony Nations, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honour the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknife Dene. My father is so Canadian. I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Indigenous nation is a visitor to this area of Clincho Tine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share what I know as I walk down my red road. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who that cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send me your comments, your questions. You can also give a review, which helps on any medium that you're listening from. I also have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And today I'm really lucky to have yet another guest, but my guest today is, um, is Timothy Lip, and he's running for city council. So Timothy, um, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Cool. Thank you again, Michelle, for this opportunity. Uh, my name is Timothy Lip. Um, my family heritage is Polish German. Uh, we've been um, on this land on my mom's side for about 60 years and on my dad's side for about 30 years. Um, Treaty 7 territory, uh, we both of my parents have a common story in the sense that their parents came to Canada because they were part of the East German, Eastern European bloc that would have been part of the USSR at the time. They both found different ways to sneak out of the USSR. And uh, a big part of why that is so important to my journey is uh, two years ago, I started reading a book called The Gulag Archipelago, which is the story of how the government of the USSR killed roughly 20 million of its own people through a massive network of um, different concentration camps and work camps across the country. My great grandmother actually starved to death at one of the concentration camps in Siberia. 
And uh, that's, I think, in terms of the uh, part of the personal family story, and why I'm so grateful to uh, the people of Treaty 7 for welcoming my family to the space. Mm. Wow. It allowed us to escape very dark times. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's interesting talking about that because my, um, you know, I, I think about my dad's side being, you know, from the Mayflower and being welcomed by the Indigenous people, you know, nursed back to health, taught how to survive in, in uh, you know, basically the New York City area. And, um, you know, now, of course, in retrospect, I wonder how they'd feel about it. But the idea was, you know, it, it's not our land to own, it's ours to share with other people, and especially those who are marginalized. So, I try to remind that, especially to newer Canadians or, or ones like yourself that came for extreme reasons and um, with the hopes and the reminder that, you know, we're supposed to live equally and yet here we are not. So, you know, um, that bigger picture. And then also I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, we talk about intergenerational trauma and obviously um, it was actually the Jewish uh, Holocaust that's really, you know, given a lot of light to that through DNA and, and such as well. And I think that anyone who's come from a war-torn country at any point in history obviously has intergenerational trauma. And we never talk about that as a society. So we actually have a lot more commonalities than we do, um, you know, differences. And yet um, in this time of truth and reconciliation, we're, we're not even discussing that. <laughs> so it's really, really uh, important that you shared your history and why you're here. I think that's important. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we had talked a little earlier about, you know, you uh, talking about your Red Road journey. And that was part of the reason why I invited you on our show, because, you know, you and I both obviously feel very strongly about reconciliation and what that might look like. And for somebody who's, you know, um, going for a position of power for a city council, I think it's really important for Indigenous people to hear it from your point of view, your lens. Um, some of the things that you uh, have learned along the way. Yeah, uh, I think, so I'm 30 years old now. Uh, I'd say I've probably been dragged kicking and screaming along, screaming along every inch of it. It's been a very much a process of uh, discovering ways I was wrong, um, which is, I think actually, yeah, I'm grateful for that. Um, because it means of the growth. I was raised in a conservative, evangelical Christian family with the firm conviction that uh, our meaning our meaning and purpose in life is to go and make disciples of Jesus. And um, that's the way my parents knew to see create good in the world and they deeply imbued those values and characteristics with us. Remember one of the books series of books that I read as a young kid were about a missionary who go off to uh, Africa, and he wrote five different journal stories, and I love those books. I actually had the opportunity as a 15-year-old to go on a three-week missions trip with them to Uganda, and I think that stuck with, stuck with me and kind of inspired me of what the opportunities of my life could be like. I really took that vision and made it my own. As a 17, 18-year-old kid, I um, dedicated my life to being a Bible translator with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And I raised funds to go and work in Nepal for two years as a language researcher. So um, Wycliffe does a series of different language development initiatives. Um, when they wanna create a Bible, they have to do a bunch of preliminary research. 
in a language. And the first step of that preliminary research is as a language researcher. Uh, so that's the work that I was trained to do. And that's the work that I did in, in Nepal, which essentially involves hiking into remote regions and conducting a mix of different tests with those minority language groups. And in the interest of basically building a language map so that language materials, written language materials could be developed in that language, the language could be recorded, and then um, eventually another team would come in later and do a Bible translation for that community. The specific community I worked with was the Western Tamang community of Nepal. If you go to the ethnologue, you can see the report I published or the SAL website, uh, sal.org. You can see the report I published for that community. And um, one, I think the looking back on it, I think that big painful, just like paradigm shifting moment that happened from that time was we were hiking back from visiting a very remote community that had never had, many of the kids had never seen a white person before. And it was an exciting adventure, but I also had developed a knee injury and uh, developed an allergic reaction to a medication I was taking at the time. So my skin was breaking on boils, really bad knee injury. I was very um, struggling a lot and ex exhausted. So we finished this trip that was over a week long, very unfamiliar environment. And uh, the following weekend, I had promised a friend of mine to, uh, that I would go and uh, spend the biggest Hindu festival of the year with him in his village. And in my Christian mind, I anticipated that this experience would be deeply exhausting and full of darkness and uh, all kinds of spiritual, dark spiritual forces. And instead I had an extremely welcoming, refreshing time with him and his family celebrating the biggest Hindu festival of the year. So that really was, I think a huge chink in my uh, perspective that I knew everything about how the world works. And uh, that, my, I think my faith started to unravel then, came back to um, Canada uh, to study business. And after, after, I guess, having really seen how in Nepal, the minority community that I was doing research in was facing a lot of pressure from the larger Hindu national government that wanted to destroy their culture and destroy their ways of life and not have any, allow them to speak their own language, Less, I would say it was less concerted and organized as the Canadian government's method, but the intent was still there. At the time, I had no knowledge about residential schools. And then I started attending Mount Royal University and through a activist group that I was a part of, we started doing financial literacy training at the Aniskum Center. And um, through some of the relationships I developed there, I just, in some of the conversations I had, I had the privilege of starting to realize that oh, the problems that I had seen from the Hindu government against minority peoples in Nepal were much more systemic, organized and structured from the Canadian government against um, indigenous people here. And uh, that similarity made me really start to question what it meant to, to be Canadian mm -hmm. because I saw something that perceived to be evil and part of the world and just part of the dark Hindu tradition. Um, and then realized that it was part of my own story. And I, I was homeschooled. I had been raised a very clear, idyllic pr perspective of Canada as being the dominion of Canada, that um, with a deep Christian, it was pretty much based on Christian values, is how we 
gained our success as a nation. And then I started learning from those relationships I built at the Iniscum Center, how that story is um, actually part of what I think is kind of a bigger pattern of colonialism the world around. Absolutely. Um, I talk a lot about um, UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People. And uh, that is a global conversation of colonialism and what um, our rights, like a Palestinian's rights should be as well, uh, a person who's indigenous to Mexico and what their rights should be. And all of these uh, nations all across the globe are, are, being, are under attack. Our languages are all threatened, our ways of life are threatened. And, and honestly, it is because of Christianity. It is from that you know, perspective of we're saving people when actually they are the ones. I, I tell people they brought their straight agenda, which has harmed the LGBTQ2 community here. And they've also um, brought the devil, which has really hurt everybody, mm. you know, and uh, they're evils that they bring. And obviously you are aware we're now working on apologies for some of these things. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a really sad reality about the global issue. And, and I feel sometimes that people don't even hear it, um, especially being in Calgary. A lot of our mining companies have had offices here right in Calgary. And they're the ones that are perpetuating genocide globally in mm -hmm. uh, some of these communities. So we actually just, have a lot of power here in Calgary, but there are a lot of folks that are completely oblivious to the issues that Indigenous people are facing here, let alone globally, let alone, you know, and how we have the power to actually make some severe changes. Our next um, book club is uh, about the uh, St. Paul Métis. And of course, you know, it's, um, and their displacement thanks to uh, colonialism. And then, um, and then the next one is actually the calls to action for business. So the hope is, is that people will, you know, uh, want to hear that one at the minimum, if that's the only call to action that they're interested in, because all they see is money, 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 maybe then they'll come to that. And I'm hoping we'll be talking about UNDRIP and uh, focusing a lot more about some of the issues that capitalism and colonialism and Christianity have all brought that have really caused a lot of harm uh, locally, nationally, and globally. So, yeah. One of the things that's um, come up for me again and again over the last couple of years, as I, and I think think that the point at the Iniscom Center was probably six years ago, um, but uh, as much as the Christian narrative would like to teach me that, as long as you just have a come to Jesus, Jesus movement, you're there and it's like, you never have to do any self-work since that point. It's come to me again and again, as an activist around um, climate change specifically that so many of the problems I tried to solve with my tech company uh, to solve climate change were fundamentally still, or problems that were rooted in uh, uh, a framework that would take land from others and that the world is fundamentally about the resources you could extract from it, um, which if we listen to indigenous people, would never, never have in the first place. It would never have been something that got out of control to this, yeah. to the extent to which it is now. I think the underlying technology we probably would have discovered anyways, because humans are creative. We are resourceful, and we always—that's just what it means to be human in many ways. We love to understand the world around us, but the kind of accounting methodology of capturing everything else that we see 
is something that I continually, continually uh, find myself fighting and just learning again and again, even how I structure my own initiatives and even a political campaign. Oh, it's so great to hear you say that. You know, I when I talk about UNDRIP, um, one of the things that um, there's a real conversation for, especially with neoliberals in, in our, you know, Western society yeah. is the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. And I keep telling people that's just another form of colonialism because it doesn't mm. recognize the Indigenous people and their methods for that area. So yeah. I, I always tell people if you're truly interested in the Sustainable Development Goals, then implement UNDRIP and you will achieve them without having to, uh, you know, perpetuate global, um, global colonialism, you know, that continued conversation. So um, my hope is, is that eventually the neoliberal progressives will hear this and understand that, you know, if they truly care about climate change, then maybe losing some of that control will help actually move us forward as opposed to their brilliant ideas that have led us into this conversation. So. <laughs> It's actually, I, that's, I confess I have not done enough research into UNDRIP specifically. Um, the, yeah, the, what are some, are there, I'm not sure we can talk about this later, or that's something I need to do more research in myself. Yeah, um, well, it's actually free. Uh, it's the foundation yeah. to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, okay. There's 46 articles, they're free, available for everybody. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, the importance of them is that it, it it will change the way you look at governance, because I think um, you know if we're talking about implementing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we have to implement UNDRIP, and we've already seen BC implement it, yet be able to bulldoze and and um, you know displace the Wet'suwet'en, and I, I that's the opposite yeah. of UNDRIP, <laughs> you know. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. You can create colonial um, laws and framework that are supposed to be, um, you know, acknowledging UNDRIP, but clearly the implementation of it is bull. And and it also is like the the foundation of Canada itself is land theft. The foundation of Canada and the Indian Act and the Constitution is based on racism. So like there really needs to be a bigger conversation of self-reflection on Canadians in general about what UNDRIP is and what it, how it would change the fabric of our society. And it's unfortunate that you know people of privilege are like, well, I don't wanna lose my stature. Well, you know, we're dying a genocide so that they can live that privileged life. So there, there does need to be a coming of understanding that, you know, everybody is benefiting at our genocide. Mm -hmm. And if they truly are just, just people in a just society, then you don't want to perpetuate genocide. It's pretty simple. So, yeah. you know, this gives us a framework to live more equally. And um, our current system is not at all set up for under, that's why I, you know, I don't want to belittle some of the activists who are so against this bill that is coming up uh, nationally, but ultimately it's not changing our constitution in any capacity. So it really will continue to just be the status quo, just as BC has done with uh, their UNDRIP legislation. And, um, you know, and, and ultimately anything that Indigenous do is under duress because of the situation that we're already in, thanks to the laws and constitution of Canada. So we have to make substantial changes. But mm -hmm. regardless, I'd love to hear, um, you know, and, and, and I appreciate you being honest about not knowing UNDRIP because, you know, there, I'm sure there are people listening that have no concept of what I'm talking about either. 
And, um, you know, I talk about UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People, TRC. I had a city employee say to me at an Indigenous program, well, I don't know what that is. And I was like, oh, I'm wow. glad to see Call to Action 57 is going fucking well in the city of Calgary. But uh, basically, the you know, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I say these words and people still don't yeah. know to, that this report is free and available. So, you know, it's really important that you're honest and, and you say that because, um, you know, ultimately, we're if we're going to move forward, we have to be honest with each other. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. I didn't realize that the uh, that in many ways TRC was referencing based off of some of the principles behind UNDRIP. I remember um, one gentleman I spoke with, uh, well, really well connected um, community leader mentioned that there have been seven different royal commissions on different topics over the course of Canada's history. And he used that almost a little bit, I think, to say, um, to diminish the value of the TRC. Mm. And um, the existence of UNDRIP and realizing that it's part of a much bigger conversation and not just a Royal Canadian Government, the Queen's report, um, helps give you, I think, it's something I wish I had said to him at that point. Um, and it's something I need to, that connection, even just like learning more about that. I have a friend who I have to, I made her a promise. Uh, she's a beautiful, wonderful Indigenous woman. I made her promise that I'd actually read a TRC call to action each day. And I haven't always been doing that. So that's something that, yeah, it's very easy. It's so easy to get caught up with the busyness of life. And I feel almost lose the bigger picture of um, what's at stake for many people. Yeah, it's, uh, so I've been doing a book club for over five years. And yeah. we do a section of the book club or the T Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, every second uh, month. So this month we're focusing we're focusing on a book of um, the Métis, and then mm -hmm. next month will be the business component of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it's been even an interesting journey for me because um, you know for me sports is an unattainable only rich kids get to go play sports in this country type of conversation. But when I actually started reading about it, um, I realized that my own uncle was reflected in this and I didn't know. And, um, you know, it, I, I learned a lot about it. And now uh, it helped me in my advocacy about the Olympics and even uh, and this was when we were doing the bid for the 2026 bid. And um, and now, of course, it's on TV and we just happened to have the TRC sports calls to action last month. Um, so I put up the uh, YouTube for that. So anyway, I bring it up because for folks like yourself who, um, you know, reading the TRC, honestly, it's a quick read because yeah. you can get the quick summary, the 94 calls to action. You can read 94 calls to action with, I don't know, in, in an, an hour, you can read it all. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's simple. And, and I can always tell when people lie to me about reading the TRC, because for example, this whole conversation on missing children and unmarked burial sites. It's like, it literally are the calls to action. If, if you yeah. didn't read the calls to action, then you don't know about it. So all of these pearl clutching reactions, not only made me want to punch them in the face and kick out their knees, but also showed me how shitty a lot of my so-called allies were. But, um, you know, our book club, we had even started a, a section. I said, like, if there was nothing else Canada did, because they have a history of absolutely no doing shit, um, if they just focused on this one thing, just this, 
like this is a doable, attainable action that needs to be done nationally. Um, that's why we started the um, the the group. And I mean, the my own members who went to this, like it, it wasn't spreading, and people were just still caught by surprise by the whole whole concept of it. And I, I'm still angry. Um, I've been gaslit since the um, original 215 bodies were, were, you know, mentioned in the media because I was like, I was angry that our elders had been telling Canadians that it was in the TRC, that people had the freaking audacity to say to my face they had read the calls to action and yet still be surprised by the gravity of this conversation. You know, I, I was I was like, this is the one attainable, doable thing by um, settlers who don't want to work on their anti-Indigenous bias, who don't want to do anti-racism work, who are just like, oh my God, I'm just a good Christian helper that just want to do good in the world. This was the one attainable thing that they could do because it's literally on their properties. Like a lot of the churches in the city of Calgary have dead bodies under them and nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to scan it but they want to have the audacity to have like a committee on reconciliation when they're like scan underneath your church, scan the grounds around your church. <laughs> then tell yeah. me, tell me what you think of your reconciliation commission or your reconciliation uh, committee. You know, um, they, they're still not reading the TRC, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, um, there's so much for us, so much work for us to do as a community. And yet we're not even having like real conversations The the whole truth component of reconciliation committees seems to be really lost, which is mm -hmm. a real, um, you know, downside to ever attaining uh, reconciliation. But to be fair to your friend who was talking about the amount of um, commissions, what that actually, like he may have said it in a derogatory way, but it's a real reflection of Canada and how um, incapable of action they are willing to do. They were willing to make Indian residential schools across the country to commit genocide, but why are they not willing to um, commit monies and funds for mental health um, support programs and to implement the TRC? You know, uh, The Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples had over 400 recommendations. One of the um, things that I, I'm curious to hear what you think about this. One of the struggles I've realized over the last couple of weeks is um, when it comes to action, it's so easy for me to, um, because of the nature of my own position of privilege, leverage anything I do. It almost like it has like a three times multiplication factor for my own benefit rather than the Indigenous community I'm trying to help. Just by virtue of its such a fine line, it's very something, it's so easy to do that. The imbalance is so real. Mm -hmm. And an example of that, uh, I had the privilege of spending some time with Bear Climb over the last couple of weeks, um, specifically uh, in the teepee that they set up at uh, Fort Calgary. And it just, it was just, it became really clear to me that if I was to go and talk about the fantastic work they do, um, in almost any political platform, it would almost instantaneously, I feel, accelerate my own political ambitions or accelerate my own prestige faster than it would grow theirs. And um, that's something I'm curious what you think about in terms of that kind of 
disparity of privilege and when it comes to actually taking action, what's a healthy way to navigate that? Well, what you just said was healthy, first and foremost, and I'll tell you why. Um, you just talked about the oppression dynamics that I'm not joking, the current city council just don't get it. They don't get that there's an oppression dynamics whatsoever. So the fact that you're even aware of it, let alone that you're aware of how you benefit from it is so already like three times ahead of what the current status quo is for average Joe uh, candidate running for city council. So, and I think that was part of the reason why I felt a lot more comfortable having you on this show as opposed to, um, you know, any other politician, because like even the conversation we're having, I normally would just charge somebody for it because, um, you know, they're learning from me. But it, it's really clear to me that you're one of the very few Christians or ex-Christians that are working on that bigger conversation of reconciliation, understanding your position of power that you're trying to attain, but also understanding the oppression dynamics that Indigenous people are facing. I'm not kidding. This is the biggest blind spot that I would say the average neoliberal uh, progressive even has. Um, and it's so obvious in the conversations of like say the Beaufort Towers when I talked about how, you know, having Indian, um, you know, culturally appropriated Indian burial sites as a so-called art piece is one of the most insulting, demeaning things you can do for reconciliation in the indigenous community. And it literally went in one ear and out the other. And, um, you know, you had the art committee, the group, the, um, and as well as the city going, oh my God, well, you know, we don't want to look racist. And of course they are racist by this whole conversation, but that bigger picture that we'll, we'll just bring in the elders we know and get their approval. And then whew, we'll have dodged that bullet. It's like, you never dodged the bullet just because you pay, um, you know, certain community members to basically nod in agreement doesn't mean that you, what you did was the right thing right? Like that's still up there. And that is, is still like one of the most insulting things for any Indigenous person across the country that knows anything about Indian residents or burial sites to come across. And it's just out there. And some, you know, uh, New York artist made the money for it. And that, that's a whole other conversation. We should actually, can we remember to bookmark that and talk about UNDRIP and how it relates to the art committee? We will have that okay. conversation even if it's offline. But um, you know, we, you understand that there's a um, uh, an oppression dynamic that this current city council does not comprehend in any capacity. And what we need for new politicians that are going into these position of power is to understand that this is an issue that um you know we're not having treaty seven chiefs at the table with city council ever we're certainly not consulting with them over something like the beaufort towers in an equal capacity because they know these like they're indian act elected chiefs so that is its own system of oppression so even if they're invited to that table they know that it's fleeting that they have no power and that anything that they have to say would basically stop them from gaining audience with the um, mayor and the council in the future. So of course you get a lot of nodding yeah. yes people because we know that if we say no and actually stand up for ourselves, then we'll never be invited to that circle again. And it happens to me all the time because um, you know, some neoliberal progressive will be like, oh my God, Michelle Robinson, she's such a great activist. We should have her at our panel discussion. And then I open my mouth and tell some truth and they're like, oh my God, I never want to have anything to do with her again. And they don't invite me and they find the, um, 
you know, native that eventually will say, yeah, no, that's a great idea and um, placate to their, their ideas and roles. And that's like, I, I was that person at one point in time too. So I'm not trying to put down anybody. I'm just trying to say that is the oppression dynamics that every indigenous person in this country faces. And um, unlike other politicians, you already seem to grasp that. And insidiously, I think that a lot of the conservatives know this and, you know, uh, play it in, in their favor for whatever dog and whistle pony show that they can put together and, um, you know, build their policies off of that as well. So um, it is really important that you understand there is that issue. Um, now under, you know, the idea of treaty was equality, um, you know, which Canada at the time, Britain never had any um, intention of giving us equality in any capacity. Um, and they had shown that because in the Indian Act was actually instituted the year before Treaty 7 was even signed. So they had very, you know, nefarious um, plans when signing Sounds like that. a clever project management timeline. That's in that immediate mind. I'm like, Gantt chart, check this, check this, check this. Oh, maybe there's some people involved. That's irrelevant. We'll just get them to sign the thing and it doesn't matter anyways. A hundred percent. Because it doesn't match our 50 year plan. Exactly. And like literally to Indigenous people, that's a spiritual covenant because they, mm -hmm. you know, did pipe ceremony. They did, um, you know, sharing circles. They, they shared their pipe with people believing that they had good intentions. And of course, they had good intentions and their people were dying and they didn't want to. <laughs> the current status quo wasn't working, but um, Canada was really nefarious in their intention with that those treaties. Right. So. Um, it's really, it's really an awful situation that we're under as a result, but it's to every Canadian's benefit that uh, this continues. So that's why a lot of uh, Canadian politicians, they know, um, they don't have to placate to me, yeah. they, they have to placate to the general population. So the more people listen to this podcast, the more people listen to not just mine, but like uh, Pam Palmater, and some of the really great leaders that we have for Canada, talking about these issues and seeing the power dynamic, like if nobody gets anything else out of this podcast, I hope it's that this one conversation that, um, you know, it's not just the city of Calgary, it's every municipality. And I'll share a really, was in one of the most awful moments, I tell you, um, when I was running for city council, there is a law firm and they were basically um, putting out to any municipality, any county, um, anyone in those positions, uh, they were, they had this seminar at, at one of the hotels and we all came and it was, uh, you know, all given binders and, and it was basically the law that had changed under Notley and some of the things that they need to know as municipalities and how they have to navigate it. One, this one particular moment, there was like me and maybe three other native guys in the entire place. We didn't, we weren't together. We didn't talk, nothing. It was just very clearly they were indigenous and, um, we're sitting there and it was monstrous the amount of tables they there were and everybody's at them like any other conference and the words were said that yeah so under the new notley government we want there there's going to be um an expectation of everyone to do um relationship building between the closest reserves that your city municipality or county are within and somebody from the back man yells unless we vote them out and it was that moment that I felt the most unsafe. And then I turned and looked 
and I scanned all these white men because it was almost all white men and I scanned and none of them would look me in the eye and the ones that would had that you know uh cocky smirk that you see from 19 year old Christians a lot that are just like I know the world and I know exactly what I'm going to do and that's exactly what we're going to do we're going to get rid of this you know knowledge and uh, so you can imagine how I kind of think it's a kind of a, you know, just serendipitous moment to see that uh, under the UCP that the municipalities and counties aren't getting their funding that they're supposed to get and the uh, abandoned well issue they're not getting dealt with because I'm like, well, you bastards didn't want to deal with Rachel Notley because you're a bunch of sexist trolls. Of course, this is where we're at. So, you know, um, I can't remember where I was rambling at all with that, but I guess that bigger picture of oppression dynamics where, you know, here was a room full of white men in positions of power in their municipalities and counties, no matter how small their hamlets were, knowing that they didn't have to engage with Indigenous people and weren't going to, and if some government came in and told them they had to, they just vote those people out then. And of course, it happened to be under a woman's leadership, but, you know, it was, yeah. it was one of the most disgusting moments that I probably have faced in my political career because um, I felt unsafe. Like, how can I possibly feel safe yeah. in a room of 200 yeah. white men that are happy yeah. to behead a white woman, let alone a bunch of Indigenous people, right? Because so of the white woman threatens the, their power structures by increasing the, like, a, a minus, minuscule demand in terms of connection to indigenous communities. Yep. I I had an interesting story that I think kind of illustrates that this morning. Um, so the, this morning I, I've been dog sitting for a neighbor for the last couple of weeks. And the dog I'm dog sitting is beautiful, um, really friendly around people, um, but has a very strong like hunter killer, probably has some coyote in her instinct. And Every time she comes close to another dog, she pretends to be friendly and then just something, she, she just snaps and just like goes for a vicious fight with them. And uh, yesterday this happened, she actually drew blood and the person who with the other dog said, oh, it's probably a leash thing. So this morning I went out with the dog, it was like early in the morning, I went to do some writing reflection and this, this dog, um, I was just letting her run around chase squirrels and another dog came by that was being walked by an older lady who's who's 70 years old. She didn't look it at all, but that's what she told me. Walking a 14-year-old, like small little poodle cross, really cute dog. Yeah. And I thought there might be a challenge. So I like went up to go grab my dog. Um, but a meter before I could get there, she just snapped and just started attacking this a dog viciously. And I did the best I could. I mean, I'm not as athletic as I thought I was. I was holding my laptop at the time. It fell and hit the concrete. I fell and hit the concrete, got a bunch of scrapes on my body. And this older lady, she fell and hit the concrete, snapped her, like damaged her $300 sunglasses. And um, so I finally grabbed, managed to grab my dog, pull her back. Thankfully the other dog wasn't hurt and the lady wasn't injured. She maybe had some bruises and she's been very gracious as we've been texting back and forth, how I can make up to her. But after the fact, it occurred to me, I was like, oh, that's why the patriarchy is so dangerous in terms of like, I, I've even, I, I started letting the dog play to her more killer instincts because she 
wanted to do that. And I was like, I thought it was totally fine. It made me feel more alive to go for runs with this dog that was just literally out on the hunt. And when you, I hear that story that you share, it reminds me of that. And I kind of see um, myself as a member of a privileged class being this dog that is twice the size, has so many advantages and just feels like it needs to fight all the time with like a totally friendly, smaller puppy that has nothing against it. And I, there's, there's no real threat, but just the imagined, um, the imagined threat is so deeply ingrained with I, our own unprocessed animal hunter instincts. <laughs> it's true. Oh, wow. it's true. Oh, that's a great story. Well, but I am sad to hear that, uh, you know, she, uh, she got some bumps and bruises because yeah. you never know when older people fall like Jesus, I'm uh, moving right now and I, I'm only 44, but I'm definitely learning my limitations um, yeah. that I never would have had when I was 20, that's for certain. So yeah, this getting older stuff sucks. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so um, it was, I wanted to ask you, I, I sure. know, like I was, I was telling you for the most part, I try to have just kind of a, a casual conversation. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to add any stress by asking you inappropriate questions. But when you went to Nepal, um, one of my favorite things that I read about was um, Mount Everest and K2 and some of the climbing experiences. And then you said you had to climb into some of these communities. I just wanted to ask you, did you get at all into um, um, mountain climbing at all? And uh, did you get to see K2 or Mount, or, uh, Mount Everest even from afar? I got to see Mount Everest from an airplane. And I did go on a trek to Annapurna, which is the eighth highest mountain in the world. And that was a really cool experience just as a tourist going through this, this trek, these beautiful communities. There's tea huts along the way. If you ever get a chance to go to Nepal, reach out to me and I'll make some introductions of people that would love to be your guide and help welcome me there. It's a beautiful space. My A big part of my heart is still there. Um, and uh, I'd love to visit there again sometime if there's an opportunity, just because of how beautiful the people are uh, oh, and welcoming amazing um yeah. you know just reading about it it just seemed like I, I had this goal at one point in time before the age of 30 to just make it to base camp and yeah. just see the enormity of this mountain before um you know I hit 30 but of course I never was able to do that and uh, um but it, it just looks like it's just it's the tallest peak in the world so mm -hmm. just to set my eyes on it and be able to see it would have been its own um amazing feat so i'm happy you at least got to see it even just from an airplane yeah 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 a oh, cool cool yeah was there anything else that you really wanted to share about um your framework for reconciliation or um oh the white goose flying report before uh yeah before we close it down um i think in terms of uh framework for reconciliation i think the um Part of a big part of my, uh, I think, what allowed me to start kind of taking some of the blinders coming off in my own journey and look, learning what reconciliation looks like really came about because, not because of any of the arguments I ever heard, but because of just the people who ended up, I ended up sharing life with. Mm -hmm. And as a young homeschool kid uh, who was always felt a little bit out of place in classrooms, went to the NISCIM Center at MRU and it was the most welcoming space in the entire university. 
And I got to find a space with other people who had grown up outside of culture in many ways as well, like I did as a homeschooler, and yet were incredibly welcoming to me. So uh, in terms of framework of reconciliation, the main thing I feel is kind of my calling is to really make it easier for uh, neighbors to have heart-to-heart -heart connections with other neighbors. And um, then that's from, that's kind of like a technology systems perspective, applying some of the tools I know and how to do that. Um, but that being done within the context of almost like the shape of what our society should look like at the end, being led by Indigenous people. Mm. Uh, because if we can, um, yeah, I've kind of submitted my own, even my own spiritual practices to, as much as I can and it's a continual journey to being led by the Indigenous community members that I know. Mm -hmm. um, because if, when they teach me about what it means to be a Christian, then I feel like I'm actually learning. Besides, I'm actually learning uh, that in what it was actually the best parts of it were intended to be, rather than the last 500 plus plus years of kind of colonial dogmatism that's really deeply filtered its way into the Christian church. Mm. And it's literally just like the, the only way, then the fastest way to take away all that BS that's been added into what is means to be a follower of Jesus. Right. So you so do what, identify as a Christian, yes? I think, I, yes. Um, yeah. I, or a covering Christian. Yep. Um, I know a few of you. <laughs> you can check out, actually, I, I wrote a book, Recovering Christian, book.com, yep. book of poetry. You can check that out. Cool. People want to read um, My Soul for Better or for Worse. Um, sells for $9.87 on Amazon. Cool. Oh, that's cool <laughs> that you're a published author. Um, there are many of our people are still Christian because of yep. colonialism doing such a good job. My um, my own family is definitely under that category. So mm. I am, um, you know, I it's a hard conversation because, you know, with my mom, it's like, well, it's all I know. And I'm like, ah, let's unpack that. But then yeah. at the same time, our existence is enough <laughs> and her being happy is enough. So all I can do is raise my daughter the best way I can. And I'm actually homeschooling her. And um, as a result of, you know, racism that we've experienced yeah. in the education system. And my hope is, is that that will be another, I wish we could get some folks in there willing to do uh, some, some real self-reflection, but, you know, I, I'll yeah. tell you um, in the hopes that maybe some other people are listening that would be interested for those who don't know the white goose flying report is a, a report that came out from the indigenous committee they actually are called the calgary aboriginal urban committee and marilyn north Pigan was on that and she and and others had put together i would say a very conservative view of the truth and reconciliation commission calls to action with the municipal lens and um there are lots of things that are not in the TRC that I, I wish all of the politicians would understand, like knowledge, land acknowledgements being critical. Um, smudging, like we're not allowed to smudge in most public buildings. And um, Christians have the audacity to tell me that they're oppressed when I can't really practice my spirituality on my own land, in, you know, in my language. And rather than all of us speaking Blackfoot right now, we're speaking English, right? So. I'd really like to see some, you know, real shifts in fundamental thinking when it comes to what Indigenous 
um, inclusion, land, culture is, and, uh, you know, bigger policy changes. To me, one of the most important calls to action for people in your position is the uh, call to action 57, and that's anti-racism training and uh, Indigenous education for all public servants. And when I have, uh, you know, a city official talking to me about an Indigenous program and I say TRC and they don't know what I'm saying, that says to me that the city is falling incredibly short on their on their training there. So I'm hoping that, you know, there will be some people that get in positions of power with some vision and create some substantial changes within the system so that we can um, move forward and I can start feeling like this place is a safer space for my family. Um, you know, I'm the co-chair for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Calgary Committee. And I can promise you the reason why I have my treadmill is because it is not safe for me to walk these streets right now. And I'm in a position of privilege to be able to have a treadmill compared to so many other people. Um, and that this this has to stop this, this um, problem that we have with Calgary police shooting and killing our women with no ramifications, no accountability, and ACERT is uh, just a bunch of old retired cops giving the green light to new cops saying, yeah, it's okay, you killed Indigenous women with your gun. Um, that would be totally unacceptable for any other demographic, but it seems to be okay when it comes to Indigenous people. So, you know, I, I leave all these thoughts and ideas with you in the hopes that yeah. If you're lucky enough to get elected, that uh, these are things that resonate and, and stick with you. And I hope that if there's any other, you know, wannabe politicians listening, that they hear this and that, and that mm. they hear these are changes we need now. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for being on my show. <laughs> it's the honor is the honor is mine. Yeah. Is there any other lasting thoughts that you want to leave us before uh, we wrap up? Um, I think. Maybe if I, there's two things that I see as, I'm not sure if opportunities is the right word, um, but things that give me some excitement, and this is from my own lens, but, and I, I want to, I'm curious how they resonate with you. Sure. Um, sure. One is in terms of, because I grew up in the homeschooling community and in realizing your, I mean, your own journey with homeschooling, and that's something I'd really like to um, fight for. I think there's, there's a lot of people that are talking more and more about homeschooling. And um, I think that that's exciting for me, and also that's something I wonder if that can we can make that can maybe be a tool of reconciliation as well. It hundred percent should be, um, and and this is more of a provincial jurisdiction where you know um, the curriculum that they were going to put out to me is uh, you know perpetuating white supremacy. So you're either perpetuating white supremacy or you're teaching internalized hate for. Uh, people of color right in this in the society so the curriculum is really the strongest issue that we have to deal with and you know it, it's interesting because um, when it comes to homeschooling like Alberta is one of the um, least strict when it comes to regulation so you know we can teach that dinosaurs didn't happen um, the earth is flat and you know women should be subservient to men like we can teach that and that's perfectly acceptable under the framework that we have and um you know i have a lot of problems with that because um you know we shouldn't be teaching anybody that ever like we have science to disprove so much of this 
Um, and then seeing all of these folks who went through our schooling system, like I grew up in Sylvan Lake, Alberta. Dina Hinshaw and I went to the exact same schools. And I don't understand how, you know, during this pandemic, we had so many radicals that were absolutely opposed to wearing a mask. And I ultimately came down to their fundamental Christian beliefs that if God meant for them to die, they would die. But yeah, I, I was really appalled by that because like even today, today, um, now there's no restrictions, but today to me, everyone should be wearing a mask until the demographic of 12 and under can get their second shot. And right now there's mm -hmm. no vaccine available. So um, unfortunately, you know, from my point of view, we should all be wearing masks for another year until they figure this out. But uh, in, in that nobody likes that idea. Nobody wants that idea. So there the politicians are like, well, nobody wants it. So we're just going to make it okay that nobody has to wear their masks. Well, you know, now we're seeing a rise. And so anyway, what I was trying to basically say when you talked about reconciliation, um, I, I brought up the pandemic because, you know, the first wave of killing us was germ warfare of smallpox. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our indigenous doctors purposely advocated at the federal level for us to get our vaccine first to be first in line with the same demographic of people who are like the most vulnerable because we are undergoing genocide and you know mark miller gave it the green light we got our first vaccines first but ultimately we were still one of the most um you know hit demographics when it came to covid and this is fundamental for understanding for a curriculum for education because we're going to have another pandemic and when we do we're going to have another bunch of freaking yahoos that are like, oh my God, I don't want to wear a mask because I'm so oppressed. Um, my spiritual beliefs are being oppressed. And I mean, we're talking to people who are speaking English instead of their language and not allowed to smudge and, you know, um, being murdered when we, you know, are open about who we are as Indigenous people. So like, I have no time for that. I have no time for them because I literally felt I, I fought for health freedoms federally for the uh cannabis being legalized you know i have no mm -hmm. time and patience for this conversation about it so for me when you talk about reconciliation and homeschooling like there does need to be a understanding of what yeah. treaty is of who the original people were and you know germ warfare like the, these are real issues and and then of course in indian residential schools um, if you were to go through the archives of my podcast, there's uh, one person I have who, um, she's a publisher author as well. She's from, I'm, I apologize, they are from Germany. And they talk about um, nationalism being the root of what happened with the Holocaust. And that in German schools, they are taught like it is wrong what they did. It is wrong to have this nationalism. And, um, and they, it, like it's a part of the curriculum. And that we need a substantial change when it comes to truth and reconciliation and, and knowing that as a society, we perpetuate this genocide. And if we're legitimately caring to stop it, we have to put this through our education system. You know, um, the bigger com concept of oppression dynamics. I mean, for somebody who is Christian homeschooled, you have a full understanding of what oppression dynamics are against Indigenous people in this country of Canada. How is it that we have public educated people that don't, right? So I don't know what the right answer there is, but I do know 100% that our education system, whether homeschooling or public, has to change substantially. Yeah. One of the um, 
I really appreciate the point you brought up about nationalism, um, because I think that's um, from a systems lens in many ways, I kind of view nationalism as the idea that there's only one story that a large group of people can have to call their own. And that kind of idea comes up in so many different ways. And I think we might actually disagree on some things in terms of the pandemic itself. Um, but one of the things that I see, or an experience that I had a few weeks ago was, it was at an incredibly intense day where it started out with someone almost dying of a drug overdose right in front of me. And he was like a white male who used to be a power engineer, lost his job a year and a half ago. And before the fire department and police got there, there was a young and indigenous man who rode over a bicycle with a Narcan kit and almost saved, and helped save that guy's life, um, which is just a powerful story of um, how like grassroots community action can be so effective. Yeah. Um, and then I shortly after that went to go pick up some tobacco for an elder and bumped into the Uyghur community protest, which is a group of people at City Hall right across from the, the Calgary Street Church. Um, so there was one group that were of indigenous people who were saying, there's 30 of us here. Every single one of us has a family member who's in a concentration camp in China. And by just being here, they told me, Tim, you're probably gonna never be able to visit China again because we're gonna go on a march to the Chinese embassy and anyone who comes in this march doesn't actually have the right to, it's probably gonna be put on a no-go list to China. Um, but the disappointing thing for me was that there was this real case of actual government oppression that these people were speaking to and almost no one, and a couple people came over from the street church to talk to that, but it was a very small group um, that actually joined in the protest. Thankfully, two young people didn't. I respect them a lot for that. Um, but I just, I almost, I feel like there's part of, the, I think, the aversion with the, that a lot of people experience against the pandemic was and why they didn't want to wear a mask was because from an intuitive sense, it was, no, I'm not saying it's rational, I'm just saying it was intuitive. They're aware that that is the capacity to lead to that uniform narrativeness that I think nationalism enables. In my mind, that's the ultimate enemy that any society struggles with as a complex society is how do we avoid become, how do we allow ourselves to become a robust society that has many different stories rather than just one story? which is, I think, the struggle. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings talks about it. It's like throwing the ring of power away. And that's in many ways, I think, the biggest thing that we're always facing mm. with each generation. And so I'm, I'm just going to try to narrow this down. So you see yeah. the mask as nationalism? Um, I think it has the potential as having a uniform narrative, which is what nationalism is. Okay, so how does that fit in the idea of vulnerable people, say 12 and under, and folks who can't get vaccinated? I think it, it the way it ties in is that, um, and I, I mean, I wear a mask, I've been vaccinated, first dose, not second dose yet. Um, but the, just from a systems narrative perspective, and actually, let, let me give an example. The first response, the first case of COVID, the first case of COVID death in Italy, which is where I first became aware of like, oh my goodness, a developed country is facing it, it's probably a real deal. It happened in a small village of 3000 people. After that first death, there were zero more deaths in that area. 
because it was a small population, they was able to respond quickly and there was no need for massive narrative efforts to share the story because everyone knew someone who knew someone. So immediately the town locked down instantaneously. But when we're at the scale of a really large society and a really large civilization, it's really hard for that kind of information to spread so quickly, which is why understandably the government put forward a lot of the messages that they did. And so, um, but that same power to push out a really important message could also be used for other nefarious purposes. And it's just, so in my mind, the goal is to, how do we actually decrease the power and decentralize the power at every level of government at every level of the conversation? Um, homeschooling is one way, part of what that could look like. Um, and then kind of just trusting uh, humans' capacity to build empathy with their neighbors to kind of be the measure of that, not nothing spreading super rapidly. And this is a, I don't know, I don't have all the answers, but that's just part of the conversation as I see it. Mm, I see. Interesting. All right. Um, was there any other points that we were going to bring up? I'm just trying to go through. Oh, the head. art thing. Art thing. UNDP or uh, UNDRIP, something to do with art and UNDRIP. Yeah, um, so I wanted to tell you this because um, I don't know why the city of Calgary is behind the times on this, but Edmonton has um, Aaron Paquette as a counselor and he was the one who helped break this down to, for me. It was um, that as a city, they implemented UNDRIP and were able to, um, have the arts committee look at their local indigenous communities first before putting it out to the broader um you know assembly of people so that somebody from new york could come in and, and take over and do an art project and um as a result they keep all of their art projects quite local and um, the indigenous community really benefit from that as a result so um what I'd like to see from you know politicians like yourself or or one of you politicians that that kind of framework gets instituted here locally so that mm. it is more um, you know with an undrip in, in mind but also so that it, the money stays more local when it comes to um, art projects because like that Indian burial site that's been appropriated by a white guy in Toronto in uh, New York like that's that is not just unacceptable. That's like, um, it, honestly, it, I, I just try to imagine how Christians would feel if I had um, taken a cross and made um, an awful depiction of Jesus and I put it on its side and I put it in a prominent place and said, I'm honoring you. You know, I just, I can't imagine that being acceptable by Christian standards and such, but it, it is because we're the marginalized group. Um, so yeah, and I'm really concerned about what you said about the pandemic because that basically that is if, if I have to depend on somebody's empathy when I'm undergoing mm -hmm. genocide as an MMIW spokesperson, like that's a clear direct problem that we have, right? Where um, I mean the government is the one who's been guilty of perpetuating this. The city of uh, Calgary allowing the Calgary police to murder our people, you know, it, it's just perpetuating it. But so if I have to depend on the empathy of people, then I know I'm dead, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I know yeah. my daughter is unsafe in your streets. 
So I need to make that really abundantly clear when, especially when it comes to the pandemic, because people don't have the empathy. They only see this side of their nose sometimes. And if that's all they can see and they can't see the broader picture. And I mean, I know lots of people who can't see broader picture. And I wish sometimes I could not see it so that that way I could live in ignorant bliss. But unfortunately, I just like our survival depends as indigenous people us knowing international law national law uh, provincial law and municipal law and and if we as well as our law <laughs> traditionally and the indian act imposed law so i have to know all of these things in order to be able to survive in this world whereas like the average canadian you've you've door knocked like they don't even know the difference between municipal provincial and and federal so it's um you know it it's eye rolling when you're at the door sometimes but at the same time like these are the people you have to serve and it's a reminder that there you are going to have this demographic of people that can't see this this beyond their nose and if you don't advocate for me and my daughter then i i would never vote for you right Mm -hmm. And, and that there has to be an understanding that there are times as a government official you may not like um, being in that position of power that says, you know, we had a flood, you're not allowed to drive downtown. Um, as Nenshi said, you know, don't be an idiot and go on the bow. But there were people who did it, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I don't like talking about natural selection because that was based off of eugenics. And, uh, you know, so I don't even like to say things like that. And that's why it was really unfortunate that Nenshi had to say that because it was taking resources of our, you know, our policing, our fire department yeah. to get people off the bow at the flood. Um, those were realities, right? So it, I mean, I don't trust the government. I don't trust the health. Um, they have racism in the health that kills our people. Uh, the justice system is corrupt to keep it, a, um, you know, justice is not happening for indigenous people. And I, should bring up uh, just yesterday christian christian a young man's verdict uh came out against his killer and rather than being tried for first degree they reduced it to manslaughter and he's basically gotten away with hunting down an indigenous man killing him and getting away with murder so and canadians will be like oh he's got manslaughter it's not the same he this is premeditated you know, first degree murder and our people do not get justice. And that's just been the history of Canada. So I, I just need to make that abundantly clear that, um, you know, it, mm. what you said will get you white votes and you will likely get elected and likely be able to live a good life as a politician knowing you didn't have to get indigenous votes, but just know like there's yeah. the moral picture of, you know, what is the ethical right thing to do? Right. And I hope as a politician, I'll pray that I have to pray, unfortunately, for Jason Kenney and all of the other elected officials, even though I fundamentally disagree with them, even Andre Chabot, who blocked me on Twitter because I called him out on voting against an MMIW motion. You know, these are this is my reality. I still have to see what they're doing. And Kenny knows that. So he makes that extra step. And same with Andre Chabot. And I'm not even going to follow what he has to do. I'm just hoping a bad harm like, like sweeps him (laughs) in the in the polls. So uh, go from there. Anyway, thank you so much for being on my show. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah. And I'll let time. This has been a, I've, I've got a lot to learn and process from this. So thank you. Oh, I'm grateful. Thank you for being so open to hearing it.
Um, I'm really proud that this podcast has given solutions and included cultural training and cultural first aid to all of them to create a safer place for Indigenous people of colour, those with disabilities and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. I want to say thank you to Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch and Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca for what is Indigenous cultural safety. So folks, you have these wonderful computers in your hands, you can Google these things um, or look in the back um, blog of my other ones to see the links. Their work uh, is cultural action tools. I've said over a hundred times in my podcast. So support Indigenous work as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding. I'm just lucky enough to highlight it and repeat it here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized people uh, face under the structure of racism, uh, thanks to the Indian Act, Indian residential schools, and other land clearing policies. Um, RacialEquityTools.org, What is Internalized Racism by Donna Bevins is another resource for folks trying to understand what internalized racism is. Do's and Don'ts for Bystander Intervention by American Friends Service Committee. Um, if you see or experience racism here in Calgary, uh, well, actually, this is a national um, tool for folks, and it was actually originally started by the Chinese community. So act uh, to end racism.ca or text here in Calgary, eight or 587-507-3838. Indigenous people have been talking about our issues, our traumas and reports, commissions and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words, honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts uh, marginalized people, demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now the 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational health and justice institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sport clubs, etc. A great article I said out loud is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. There's so many articles now on how to be an ally. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talked about and want to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit, uh, Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll-free, open uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also, there's a text feature on their website at hopefulwellness.ca. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, for emotional assistance, you can call 844-413-6649. Um, there's also, if you're non-Indigenous, distress center lines in your areas, usually a functioning 211, or you can call 833 456 
4566. And there's also the 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta at ssisa.ca. You can look at for hashtag survivor driven. Um, and again, act to end racism at eight or 587-507-3838. And if you see an experience that you can text them right away and let them know. And there's a form that comes out. The Trevor Project has some wonderful resources for LGBTQ2+. There's a trans lifeline as well as an LGBTQ youth support line that you can also text at. Uh, the Kids Help phone I'll always suggest at 1-800-668 or 668-6868 and lifevoice.ca has all sorts of crisis supports, especially if you're LGBTQ2+. Uh, violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely, without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. As many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs usually by people who know nothing about colonialism, Indigenous, the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. Microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, gatekeepers that live off the status quo, or people who are so, so in their trauma, they stop people from doing the work and deplete personal resources. External and internal racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. That's why I started this podcast as a boundary to be heard. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mama, what strength looks like through your example, my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt, my stepmom for teaching me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her. I am a second generation Calgarian. Um, thank you to my husband for producing and editing the show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child, he's been my support down my journey of the Red Road, witnessing decades of racism and sexism. To our child, we are blessed to learn from daily. We are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. My hope is that my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening, watching, and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. I have a YouTube channel, and you can also leave a really great review at any of the social medias that you listen to or, or hear through this. Can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and all my pin posts on social media. And I want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not your dish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. <laughs> Thank you for listening.